Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 15. In chapter 14, we began a section that runs through to the end of chapter 18 and the first two verses of chapter 19, which we titled Progressive Polarization. You can see Judaism beginning to split and splinter under the pressure of Jesus' teaching and claims. Here in this chapter, we encounter one of the main dividing issues, the claim of Jesus to be the authoritative interpreter of the law. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, now let's just pause here briefly. This appears to be an official delegation sent from Jerusalem to investigate the teaching and claims of Jesus. The Jerusalem authorities are concerned with the reports they've been receiving as to Jesus' approach to the law. This encounter is very important in terms of our understanding of one of Matthew's major themes, which is the function of the law. This is one of the critical dividing points between Jesus and the Pharisees, and ultimately between Christianity and Judaism. An argument can be made that only two strains of Judaism survived the catastrophe of A.D. 70, the Pharisaic strand, which became Rabbinic Judaism, and Christianity. The temple is no more, and therefore the Sadducees are no more, and we hear virtually nothing more of the Sadducees, and we hear nothing more of the Essenes after AD 70. Judaism is fracturing. You can see that in this story, and only two groups are going to survive, those following Jesus and those following the Pharisees or the rabbis. And one of the most important dividing issues between those two groups has to do with the role and function and correct understanding of the Old Testament law. Commentator Michael Green puts it this way, The main point of controversy was this. The Pharisees had developed a whole fence of traditions and additions to protect the law. They regarded their modifications, the tradition of the elders or the oral law, as of equal value to the Torah, since they claimed that both the written and the oral law derived from Moses on Mount Sinai, closed quote. So the Pharisees believed that Scripture was authoritative, and they also believed that their interpretive traditions were authoritative. And sometimes, Jesus contended, their interpretations were actually contrary to the clear intention of the Bible. And whenever such a conflict emerged, they always sided with their own traditions. Jesus, on the other hand, said that he knew what the scriptures originally intended, and that his life, ministry, and teaching was, in fact, the ultimate fulfillment of everything written and prophesied therein. That's a a bold claim, and it created a serious crisis within first century Judaism. And we are watching that crisis unfold in these encounters. So, a group of Pharisees has been sent as an official delegation from Jerusalem And this is what they said to Jesus when they came to him. Verse 2, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, notice the problem. The Pharisees understand the tradition of the elders as being essentially equal in authority to the law. 
This refers to the oral tradition that was later codified in the 2nd and 3rd centuries into what became known as the Mishnah. So, they aren't accusing the disciples of breaking the law. There is no commandment in the Bible specifying how a person ought to wash their hands when they eat. That was an oral tradition. So, this is a scenario that brings us to the heart of the essential conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. Verse 3, he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus here, in responding to the Pharisees, makes a sharp distinction between the commandments of God and human traditions. The commandments of God are to be considered authoritative, but not the traditions of men. Jesus here, once again, rebukes and rejects the Pharisaic approach to righteousness. Their way was arrogant and hypocritical. It has the appearance of righteousness, but was really motivated by greed and selfishness. The example provided appears to have to do with a person who will not sell a piece of property to support an aging mother and father. To avoid the appearance of greed, he declares the property korban, that is, dedicated to God. The idea being that it will be left to the temple upon his death. Thus, he gets to enjoy the property now while his poor parents suffer. He looks righteous when, in fact, he has disobeyed God. This, in Jesus' view, is the root problem with the Pharisaic approach to righteousness. They leverage their traditions so as to open loopholes and escape hatches in the clear word of God. They want to look obedient, but they don't actually respect and love the heart and intention of the law. Verse 10, And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Here, Jesus explicitly rejects the Pharisaic movement and refers to them as blind guides to the blind. If you follow their way, you will end up in the pit. Their way is not the way of the kingdom. Verse 15. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. In this discourse about food laws and purity concerns, Jesus seems to be saying that such things were prophetic and preparatory in nature and do not deal in the real issues of righteousness and holiness 
before God. Indeed, in Mark's gospel, there's an editorial comment here. Immediately following Mark's version of the same encounter, Mark says in Mark 7, verse 19, thus he declared all foods clean. So Mark, obviously reporting Peter's understanding shortly before his death, says that this story and this teaching by Jesus effectively annulled the Old Testament food and ritual purity laws. Matthew does not include any such comment, but that doesn't mean that he didn't share Peter's interpretation. R.T. Francis here, the principles set out by Jesus' words in verse 11 and 17 to 20 made the ultimate abandonment of the Old Testament food laws by the church inevitable, closed quote. So in the Jesus movement, the understanding developed that Jesus was the one who truly understood the original intent of the law. And clearly, he understood the intent of the food and purity laws to have been educative and provisional. And that quickly became the orthodox approach to all such matters in the early church. Verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. This movement appears to be a response to the official interest of the Jerusalem delegation. Jesus is controlling the timetable. And he is not yet ready for a final showdown with the leaders in Jerusalem, so he retreats into Gentile territory, about 80 kilometers north of Galilee. Verse 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. The key line in the story is, O woman, great is your faith. William Hendrickson says helpfully here, the great contrast between the unbelief of the Jews and the faith of this woman born a Gentile stands out, closed quote. The story also serves to remind us of Jesus' own sense of mission. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Salvation in the Bible is to the Jew first and also to the Greek, Romans 1.16. The Jews were given the first opportunity to embrace their Messiah. The surprise, then, is how few there were who did so. The Apostle Paul addresses this mystery at length in Romans chapter 9-11. through 11. It also serves to remind us that Jesus went north into Gentile territory, not so as to minister to the Gentiles, but so as to avoid the opposition of the Jews. Nevertheless, as always, Jesus is compassionate and responsive to human need. Jesus always knew his purpose, but he was ever characterized by pity, and so must we be. Verse 29, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered 
when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Of course, we should be careful to notice that this is all still happening inside Gentile territory. And all the people Jesus is dealing with here are, therefore, Gentiles, as the last part of verse 31 makes very clear. And they glorified the God of Israel. Only Gentiles would say that. So again, the point is that even though the purpose of the trip was to avoid the hostility of the Jewish leaders and to build into the 12 disciples, nevertheless, Jesus was responsive to the needs of the Gentile crowd. His mercy overflows the banks. Thanks be to God. Verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men beside women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Now, some liberal scholars consider this to be a doublet that is a second telling of an event that only actually happened once. But there is no compelling reason to think that. Rather, it seems that this was a Gentile version of the feeding of the 5,000. The failure of the disciples to anticipate it relates to their understanding of what the original miracle signified. They saw the feeding of the 5,000 as a prophetic anticipation of the great messianic banquet foretold in the prophet Isaiah. And they did not foresee the inclusion of the Gentiles in that banquet. Therefore, they did not anticipate Jesus dealing with the Gentile crowd in the same way he had previously dealt with a crowd of Jews. If the 12 baskets of remainders from the first miracle represented the 12 tribes of Israel, then these seven baskets likely represent the fullness of the Gentiles. Even though at this point in the story, many Jewish people are resisting him, the Gentiles appear very eager to accept him. Matthew is very interested in this unexpected development. And indeed, it is one of the major themes of the New Testament. It is a mystery. It is strange providence. But as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 11, it will bring mercy and it will result in glory. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And I hope to see you again tomorrow, right here for another episode of Into the Word. Before.